Hello, and welcome back to Modern World History. Today, I want to talk about the Great War. In 1914, Europe had been officially at peace for nearly a century. However, the official peace covered a growing tension that was beginning to flare up into military conflict. Unification of Germany in 1870 after the Prussian-led victory over France had created a new nation with imperial aspirations in the middle of Europe. Bismarck's new nation competed with neighboring countries in industry, agriculture, and overseas empire building. The existence of a strong, unified Germany ended that careful balance of power created by the Congress of Vienna in its effort to reset the clock and redraw the map after the Napoleonic Wars of 1815. France and Germany were enemies and sought alliances against each other. By 1914, most of these governments of Europe were preparing for an eventual war that they believed was inevitable uh, between these groups of allied nations, although nobody knew exactly what incident would bring the continent into battle. Uh, but as early as 1888, the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck had predicted that some damn foolish thing in the Balkans could initiate widespread European conflict. He was proven correct in the streets of Sarajevo in June 1914. During World War I, the principal members of uh, each of these alliances were uh, what was called the Central Powers, consisting of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, they're also known as the Triple Alliance, uh, against what were confusingly called the Allied Powers, or the Triple Entente, uh, which were France, Great Britain, and Russia initially. Uh, Russia left the war in 1918, Italy joined the Allies in 1915, and uh, Japan was an additional ally on the French side. Uh, and then, of course, the United States entered the war to support the Allies in 1917, which we'll talk about quite a bit. Um, the underlying causes of this First World War were nationalism, uh, the new nation's opposition to foreign rule by the old empires, uh, and simmering rivalries between the great powers that were exacerbated by treaties requiring the Allies to enter a war once it began. Previously, potential world conflicts had been avoided through negotiation among the powers. Uh, Africa had been divided among the European empires at the Berlin Conference in 1885, uh, while spheres of influence were established in China to regulate trade and missionary activities by the Westerners. Uh, however, this concert of nations did not succeed in the Balkans. The unification of Germany upset the balance of Europe. Not only did the new Deutsches Reich aspire to become an imperial power like Britain and France and Russia, but it was successful in rapidly building up its military and its industrial power. Uh, by the first two decades of the 20th century, Germany surpassed Britain to become the largest economy in Europe and second in the world to the United States. German scientists won more Nobel Prizes than any other nation besides the U.S., and Germany's navy was rapidly racing to surpass Britain's. In 1888, Kaiser Wilhelm II took the imperial throne when both his father and his grandfather died in rapid succession. 
His grandfather, Wilhelm I, the king of Prussia, whom Bismarck had made into an emperor at Versailles, uh, ruled until he was 90 years old. His grandson took the throne at the age of 29. Due to the elaborate intermarriages of European ruling families, Wilhelm II was not only the grandson of Wilhelm I, but he was also the eldest grandson of Queen Victoria of England. Perhaps taking his inspiration from the British Empire, Wilhelm II launched Germany onto what he called a new course towards overseas imperialism. The Kaiser ordered his military leaders to read Alfred Thayer Mahan's book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, uh, which had also impressed Theodore Roosevelt in America. By 1914, the German Navy was second only to the British Royal Navy and was rapidly catching up. Uh, the new emperor also dismissed Bismarck as chancellor in 1890. Bismarck was 74, 75 years old by this time. And he began looking for ways to make uh, Germany a colonial empire uh, through a much more aggressive foreign policy than had been envisioned by his aging chief advisor. The 84-year-old Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Josef uh, had been reigning since 1848, the year of revolutions. Uh, his nephew, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was 50, uh, was crown prince and expected to become the next emperor anytime. In the area of Western Europe, between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, called the Balkan Peninsula, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire all claimed control and jockeyed to dominate. Uh, as described in the previous chapter, the Ottomans had been gradually losing power in Europe since the 1700s. By the end of the 19th century, newly independent nations of Greece and Bulgaria and Romania and Montenegro and Serbia all separated the Muslim Ottomans from the Catholic Austro-Hungarians. The Orthodox Russians also dreamed of reestablishing Constantinople in Istanbul and felt a kinship with the Orthodox Slavs and the Serbs and the Bulgarians. The Balkan conflict that Bismarck had predicted in 1888 uh, began in 1908, 20 years later, when the Austro-Hungarians took over Bosnia from the Ottoman Empire. Many Serbs lived in Bosnia, so Serbian nationalists wanted to make this new region a part of Serbia. The Serbs and the Bulgarians deepened their alliance with the Russians, uh, who also wanted to check the expanding influence of the Austrians in the Balkans. The independent nations of the Balkans fell into war in 1912 and 1913, first against the Ottomans, which resulted in the independence of Albania, and then against each other as ethnic and religious boundaries were contested. Uh, these were bloody conflicts that included attacks on civilian populations in waves of ethnic cleansing. Uh, people living in this region would experience similar massacres in the 1990s after the end of the Cold War which we'll talk about later in the semester. Balkan uh, armies on both sides dug into trenches as new arms and new technology limited the movement of troops. In an effort to strengthen Bosnian ties to Austria, the crown prince, Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophie, made an official visit to the regional capital of Sarajevo in June of 1914. 
a secretive uh, Serbian nationalist group, which wasn't that much of a secret because it had been encouraged by the Serbian military, uh, plotted the assassination of the royal couple as their motorcade made its way through the city. After some initial bungling, one of the conspirators, a 19-year-old named Gavrilo Princip, shot and killed both the Archduke and his pregnant wife. The Austro-Hungarian government made a series of demands of restitution and ultimatums to the Serbian government. And when Serbia refused, Austria decided to invade. Now, Germany was bound by its treaty obligations to support any action taken by its ally, Austria-Hungary. Austria's invasion of Serbia activated the European alliance system. Russia sided with the Serbs, France sided with Russia, and Great Britain was allied to France. All of Europe's armies had been preparing for a continent-wide conflict uh, since the unification of Germany in 1870. Uh, most nations were requiring some form of military service from all young men, a universal draft, so that there were thousands of trained reserve officers and soldiers that could be quickly called up. Um, all the war plans uh, relied on the quick mobilization of troops uh, and, of course, the extensive uh, European railway network that had been built in the 19th century uh, made moving regiments rapidly easier than it had been in any previous war. Uh, and this rapid deployment meant that as soon as one side mobilized, the opposing side also had to mobilize in defense. Less time was available for calm decision-making as every nation rushed to arms. In July 1914, when Austria declared war and shelled the Serbian capital, Belgrade, Russia mobilized its military. Germany mobilized against Russia. Russia was allied with France. Great Britain was allied with France as well. So everybody is in. The Ottomans sided with Germany as a counter to Russia. Um, Italy which actually had a defensive alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary, sat out the first months of the war until its government decided actually to side with France, Great Britain, and Russia instead in early 1915. Advances in military technology caused a stalemate. Uh, the wars of the 19th century had been mobile, with generals coordinating the movements of infantry, foot soldiers, of horse cavalry, and artillery cannons on a battle landscape. Uh, however, conflicts like the Crimean War uh, and the U.S. Civil War as well had begun introducing better, more deadly weapons. Uh, the charge of the Light Brigade had proven that cavalry was ineffective against dug-in artillery. And in the last decades of the 19th century, as we've seen, Europeans had perfected the use of machine guns, practicing on native populations in their colonies. By 1914, the armies of Europe had better weapons and better defenses. Long-range artillery, machine guns, trenches, barbed wire. Uh, and they were ready to use these against each other, rather than just on the so-called barbarians that their empires ruled over. Since neither cavalry nor infantry could stand against machine guns, Attacks in trench warfare began with massive artillery barrages to try to soften up the other side before troops were sent up out of the trenches, over the top, into the no-man's land between the trenches and those of the enemy, with fixed bayonets to overwhelm any enemy soldiers that had survived the shelling. 
when their artillery had not sufficiently softened up the opposing forces, uh, attackers would be met with enough machine gun fire to slow down any effective advances. Uh, during the four years of the war, millions would either be severely wounded or killed in this no-man's land that separated the opposing armies. Frustrated with the stalemate of trench warfare, the opposing sides on the Western Front uh, both tried new technologies and strategies to try to reach a decisive victory. Airplanes, first developed by the Wright brothers in America in 1903, proved their value in reconnaissance and uh, later in strafing trenches with machine guns and in dropping small bombs. Early radios allowed aviators to coordinate with ground controllers. And in the spring of 1915, the Germans uh, first experimented using poison gas on the battlefield. Within months, all sides would develop different varieties of poison gases while at the same time racing to improve the designs of their gas masks. Uh, poison gas added another devastating weapon to trench warfare, while achieving really no significant advantage for either side. At least 1.3 million people were killed in gas attacks. Chlorine and mustard gas were two of the most effective and most used chemical weapons uh, by both sides. In the case of mustard gas poisoning, the effects would take 24 hours to begin, and it could take four or five weeks to actually die. German development of poison chlorine gas and its first use was supervised by Fritz Haber, a scientist who won the Nobel Prize for co-inventing what we call the Haber-Bosch process for synthesizing nitrogen out of the atmosphere. After 67,000 troops were killed and wounded by the first use of his gas, in April of 1915, Haber's wife, who was also a scientist named Clara Immervar, killed herself with his service revolver in protest. Poison gases were heavier than air, so they settled into low areas like trenches, uh, but also sometimes rolled into low-lying towns, killing and injuring civilians. Airplanes and poison gas, alongside machine guns and massive artillery, simply became new cogs in the war's increasingly effective killing machine. Uh, more people were killed, but without any real change in the outcome of the war. Enormous battles would rage on for months at a time, like Verdun and the, the Somme in 1916, resulting in millions of casualties, but hardly any territorial changes. The conflict on the Eastern Front, where the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians faced the Russians, was more mobile. In 1916, as the months-long Battle of Verdun seemed to begin going against the French, the Russian army intervened and overwhelmed Austrian forces in the Brusilov Offensive, the largest and most deadly of the war, and some historians say the largest offensive of any war. Uh, hundreds of thousands died on both sides as the Russian army advanced forcing the Germans to divert their forces from the Western Front to defend the East. Austro-Hungarian offensive capabilities were largely destroyed in this offensive, but the Russian officers also became disillusioned and began to seriously question the competence and the decisions of their officers and commanders, including the Tsar himself. 
Even before the entry of the United States in 1918, the war had become truly global. Japan was eager to be counted as a world power. And so Japanese leaders seized on the opportunity that the war would provide to improve their status in Asia. After taking control of German colonies in China and the Pacific in 1914, Japan sent the Chinese government a list of 21 demands. The Chinese believed that giving in to Japan's demands would have basically resulted in China becoming a colony of the Japanese Empire. So as they negotiated and agreed to some of the demands, they leaked the list to British diplomats who intervened to prevent a complete shift in the balance of power in Asia. The Ottoman Empire controlled territory on both sides of the Bosphorus Straits, uh, which connected the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. In 1915, the Allies landed troops at Gallipoli, a peninsula on the European side of the Bosphorus, about 200 miles from the Ottoman capital in Istanbul. The battle plan was to take Istanbul, uh, knock the Ottoman Empire out of the war, and open a third front against Austria-Hungary and Germany through the Balkans. However, the Turks held the high ground above the landing site, chosen for the colonial troops. Um, Australian and New Zealand Army Corps Anzac troops were decimated in a battle that actually kind of marks the beginning of a sense of nationality in those countries. Uh, the anniversary of G the Gallipoli landing, April 25th, is still celebrated in Australia and New Zealand as Anzac Day. This disastrous battle plan nearly ended the political career of the British First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. The 11-month-long Gallipoli invasion uh, was even more important for the Turks. The victory was led by General Mustafa Kemal, who soon became a national hero and would go on to found the modern Turkish Republic and serve as its first president after the war ended. Uh, however, at nearly the same time as the Gallipoli landings, the Ottoman government that was in power at the time also decided to take action against the Christian minority in Armenia. Armenians had suffered from periodic pogroms in the decades preceding World War I. Um, they were loyal subjects, and many, in fact, were serving in the Ottoman army when the persecution began. But after an unsuccessful Russian attempt to invade Turkey from the east, some military leaders in the Turkish government accused the Armenians of collaborating with Russian troops or at least of being potential collaborators, and decided to eliminate this risk by eliminating the Armenian population. Men were executed, while women and children were force-marched across the desert to Mesopotamia. Nearly a million died in what was the worst genocide of the 20th century before the Holocaust of World War II. The U.S. ambassador, Henry Morgenthau, visited the area and saw the people who had been killed or had died along this route. Um, and he said, scenes like this are common all over the Armenian provinces in the spring and summer months of 1915. Death in its several forms, massacre, starvation, exhaustion, destroyed the larger part of the refugees. 
the Turkish policy was that of extermination under the guise of deportation. Another way that this was a global war was that the imperial powers drafted soldiers from their colonies into the fight. Uh, many of the 18 million people killed in battle and the 23 million wounded were people ruled by the empires. The French brought in African troops from Senegal and Morocco who fought and died in the trenches of the Western Front alongside the Allied soldiers. British Imperial subjects like the Canadians and Australians and New Zealanders in the Commonwealth fought beside their English cousins. Um, and over 700,000 Indians fought for Britain against the Ottomans in Mesopotamia. Uh, Indian divisions were also sent to Gallipoli, uh, to Egypt, to German East Africa, and to Europe. And at least 74,000 Indians died in World War I. The United States had a long tradition of trying to avoid being drawn into the great powers conflicts of Europe. American attitudes toward international affairs uh, reflected the advice given by President George Washington in his 1796 farewell address to avoid entangling alliances. The Monroe Doctrine in 1823 had gone further to establish the Western Hemisphere as the United States area of interest, implying that the U.S. didn't intend to intrude in the, affair, in the affairs of Europe. However, although the U.S. didn't participate in these international diplomatic alliances, American businesses and consumers were benefiting from the trade that had been generated by nearly a century of European peace and by the expansion of the Atlantic economy that that had allowed. Additionally, by the 1880s and the 1890s, millions of Europeans had emigrated to the United States to work in factories and mines or to establish farms in the West. More Irish and Germans arrived, and also Swedes and Norwegians and Finns and Poles and Ukrainians, Italians and Jews from Eastern Europe. Uh, the U.S. needed and to a great extent welcomed these newcomers. Uh, while America at the same time served as a safety valve for the European nations with an excess of poor landless peasants. Uh, the diversity among the immigrants in this American melting pot helped to bolster the case for U.S. neutrality in European affairs, even as the war began and got underway. A foreign policy of neutrality also reflected America's focus on building its own new powerful industrial economy which was financed largely at this time with loans and investments from Europe, and especially from London. However, U.S. dependency on foreign capital began to change during this war, when American bankers began making substantial loans to Britain and to France. John Pierpont Morgan's successor, J.P. Morgan Jr., who had spent most of the early years of his career managing the family's bank in London, leveraged a relationship with the British ambassador, Cecil Spring Rice, to have the Morgan Bank designated as the sole source U.S. purchasing agent for both Britain and France. J.P. Morgan and company managed the Allies' purchases of munitions, food, steel, chemicals, and cotton, receiving a 1% commission on all sales. Morgan then led a consortium of over 2,000 other banks and managed the loans of the Allies. 
which ultimately exceeded $500 million, or nearly $13 billion in today's money. Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State, the populist leading William Jennings Bryan, objected to the loans and argued that by denying financing to any of the belligerents, the U.S. could hasten the end of the war. But a quick end of the war was not the banker's goal. One of J.P. Morgan & Company's managing directors, Thomas Lamont, presented his views in a 1915 speech to the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Lamont observed that the war offered the United States a unique opportunity to shift from being a debtor nation dependent on loans from Europe and Britain to becoming a global creditor. We are piling up a prodigious export trade with war orders, he said, running into the hundreds of millions of dollars. America was poised, Lamont concluded, to become the trade and finance center of the world, and the U.S. dollar to replace the British pound sterling as the world's currency. But this would only happen, Lamont warned, if the war goes on long enough. A quick end to hostilities would allow Germany to rapidly regain its competitive position. The best result for America would be a long war that ended in a German defeat and left the winners deeply in debt to the United States. Lamont's prediction, of course, came true. Wall Street in New York City became and remains the financial capital of the world, with international debt denominated in U.S. dollars, largely because of those loans made to the European allies during World War I. U.S. agriculture also benefited from the war raging in Europe. Armies needed calories, but the sons of farmers and their horses in the wheat fields of France and elsewhere were being drafted into the conflict. Soon, grain from the Great Plains in the United States was feeding British and French troops on the Western Front, bringing wealth to Midwestern agricultural communities. And farmers were soon purchasing new equipment or buying or even renting additional land to produce more. The European powers had been building up their military capabilities, as I said, for nearly a generation before the outbreak of this war. And it was unclear whether the United States could mobilize rapidly. In late 1916, border troubles in Mexico served as an important field test for modern American military forces and for the National Guard. Mexico had been thrown into revolution and chaos that threatened American business interests when um, the reformer Francisco Madero challenged Porfirio Diaz's corrupt and unpopular conservative regime. Madero was jailed, and then he fled to San Antonio and planned the Mexican Revolution. Although Diaz was quickly overthrown and Madero became president, the revolution unleashed forces that demanded more social change, especially in land reform, that the new liberal government was unable to deliver. New uprisings led by Pancho Villa and Emilio Zapata broke out in rural Mexico. Reactionaries then assassinated President Madero in Mexico City in early 1913 with the encouragement of the European and U.S. ambassadors, and a military regime was installed. But the social upheaval and the guerrilla war continued. In April 1914, President Wilson ordered the Marines to accompany a naval escort to Veracruz on the eastern coast of Mexico 
The Wilson administration had officially withdrawn its support from the new military government and was watching warily as the revolution devolved into a series of assassinations. In 1916, provoked by American uh, support of his rivals, Pancho Villa raided Columbus, New Mexico. His troops killed 17 Americans and burned down the town center. Uh, President Wilson sent General John Blackjack Pershing to capture Villa and to disperse his rebels. And he used the powers of the new National Defense Act to mobilize over 100,000 National Guard troops from across the country as an invasion force in northern Mexico. Although these troops failed to capture Villa, they did gain experience in the field and developed a more professional fighting force which would form the basis of the U.S. Army when war was declared against the Central Powers a few months later. In November 1916, Woodrow Wilson was re-elected president. Uh, the people rallied around the slogan, he kept us out of war. By the spring of 1917, President Wilson believed that a German victory would drastically and dangerously alter balance of power in Europe. But he had promised to keep the U.S. out of the war. Submarine warfare had been a problem earlier in the conflict when the Lusitania was sunk in 1915. In 1917, the German general staff decided that a new push for victory on the Western Front needed to be combined with a renewal of U-boat attacks in an effort to starve out the British and the French. The Germans apparently realized that this policy would draw the U.S. into the conflict on the side of the Allies, but they hoped that the military unpreparedness of the U.S. would give them time to break through the French lines and end the war before the Americans had a chance to arrive. In January 1917, also, a document called the Zimmerman Telegram surfaced. When it was decoded, it was found to contain a suggestion from an official of the German Foreign Office to the German ambassador in Mexico that if the U.S. entered the war, Mexico should be encouraged to invade America to regain the territory taken in the Mexican-American War. Many Americans doubted the authenticity of this telegram, especially because it was delivered by British intelligence officers to the secretary of the U.S. Embassy in London. However, Zimmerman soon acknowledged its authenticity, claiming that he had only been suggesting a Mexican invasion if the United States had already entered the war. The Mexican government, for its part, announced that it would never have seriously considered the German suggestion. After all, they were occupied with their own revolution. But with American public opinion finally behind him, President Wilson went to Congress in February 1917 to announce that diplomatic relations with Germany had been severed. On April 2nd, Wilson returned with a war message that included the argument that, quote, the present German submarine warfare against commerce is a warfare against mankind, end quote. So Congress declared war on Germany on April 4th, 1917. Now, the other thing that happened, Wilson's request for a declaration of war followed just a few days after Russia's withdrawal from the conflict. The third year of the war saw a major change in German military prospects when the Romanov dynasty 
of Tsar Nicholas II collapsed in March 1917. The trouble had begun in late February with a strike by women factory workers in St. Petersburg. 90,000 women took to the streets shouting bread and down with the autocracy and stop the war. The following day, over 150,000 men and women marched and a general strike began. Within a few days, the army had sided with the revolutionaries and Nicholas II was forced to abdicate. Liberal reformers soon established a republic, which actually made it easier for President Wilson to proclaim that the war was to make the world safe for democracy, since a major ally was no longer ruled by an absolute monarch. However, the democratic reformers in Russia were not as well organized as socialist revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, who saw the end of Tsarist rule as an opportunity to also defeat capitalism and to create a dictatorship of the proletariat. The revolutionaries, and especially the soldiers and sailors who supported them, wanted to end Russian participation in the war, so Lenin promised them that that would be his first order of business. By the fall, the socialist revolutionaries had established workers and soldiers' councils, called Soviets, in all the major cities. In November 1917, they overthrew the fledgling republic to establish a revolutionary socialist state under the leadership of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, who began to call themselves the Communist Party. Lenin, confident that his revolution would soon inspire oppressed workers everywhere to overthrow capitalism, quickly negotiated a peace with Germany in March 1918 to prevent Germany from invading Russia after Russia stopped fighting. He ceded um, most of Russia's western territories, including Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine. Lenin lost 34% of the former Russian Empire's population and most of its industrial base. The treaty also called for territories claimed by the Ottoman Empire, Germany's ally, to be turned over, but Armenia and Azerbaijan and Georgia all declared their independence instead. Uh, Russia also agreed to pay 6 billion marks to compensate Germany for its losses. The Russian Revolution led to a civil war between the Workers and Peasants Red Army, which was uh, formed and led by Bolshevik leader Leon Trotsky, and the armies of the White Russians uh, under several leaders, which was dedicated to uh, restoring Tsarist monarchy. To prevent the return of the Romanovs to power, the revolutionaries had the entire family killed in July 1918. The revolutionaries also waged war on uncooperative peasants called kulaks, uh, whom they accused of withholding grain from the Bolshevik government. Uh, many of the kulaks were Ukrainian, which contributed to an ongoing aggression toward Ukraine by the new Soviet Union. Even after World War II ended, the Allies, including the United States, continued supporting the White Russians against the Bolsheviks, sending thousands of troops to support the counter-revolutionaries in Siberia between 1918 and 1920. Years later, Joseph Stalin, who fought on the Soviet side in the Civil War, would remember this fact while negotiating with Britain and the U.S. during 
World War II. As soon as the war began, governments on both sides moved quickly to portray the war effort as a success and to eliminate any signs of dissent. Britain censored mail sent by soldiers at the front of their families, uh, instituting standardized postcards that allowed men in the trenches to choose from a menu of statements, but not to write anything specific about their experiences. Society became completely focused on the war effort. This was total war. Governments reorganized their economies around war production. The state also rationed food and strictly controlled the media, which at that time meant the press, uh, to silence dissent and to present news of the war that boosted morale and that stiffened the resolve of the population. Although the English author George Orwell was still a schoolboy at the time of the war, uh, he lived through this period and he later served as a military police officer in Burma. So the censorship and propaganda that we think of as Orwellian in works like 1984 probably reflect his experience during the First World War. To stifle dissent in the U.S., the government passed the Espionage Act in June 1917. Woodrow Wilson declared the act was designed to prosecute those who he said had poured the poison of disloyalty into the arteries of our national life to debase our politics to the uses of foreign intrigue. Although Wilson implied that the people he intended to target were born under other flags, most of the people prosecuted, like the labor leader and socialist party presidential candidate Eugene V. Debs, were American citizens. Wilson also suggested that labor unions' actions to defend worker rights during wartime would be considered an attack on America. The law was expanded with the Sedition Act of 1918, which prohibited any forms of speech that could be considered disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States. As the Russian Revolution was taken over by the Bolsheviks, U.S. concern shifted from draft resistance to socialism, and a red scare gripped America. Hundreds were arrested, deported, or jailed under the Espionage and Sedition Acts. Uh, by 1919, even the authorities realized they had gone too far, and the U.S. Attorney General convinced President Wilson to commute the sentences of 200 prisoners convicted under the Acts. The European powers struggled to adapt to the brutality of this new modern war with its advanced artillery and machine guns and poison gas and submarines. Until the spring of 1917, um, the Allies had few effective defensive measures against German submarine attacks, uh, which had sunk more than a thousand ships by the time the United States entered the war. The rapid addition of American naval escorts to the British surface fleet and the establishment of a convoy system countered uh, much of the effect of German submarines. Shipping and military losses declined rapidly, just as the American army began preparing to arrive in Europe in large numbers. Although uh, many of the supplies still needed to make the transatlantic passage, the physical presence of the army proved to be a fatal blow to the German plans to dominate the Western Front. In March of 1918, the Germans tried to take advantage of the withdrawal of Russia and its new single-front war 
before the Americans arrived with the Kaiserschlacht, the Spring Offensive, uh, which was a series of five major attacks. By the middle of July 1918, each and every one of these had failed to break through the Western front lines. Then on August 8th, 1918, two million men of the American expeditionary forces joined British and French armies in a series of successful counteroffenses that pushed the disintegrating Germans back across France. The gamble of the Spring Offensive had exhausted Germany's military, making defeat inevitable. Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated at the request of the German military leaders, and a new democratic government agreed to an armistice on November 11th, 1918. They hoped that by embracing Wilson's call for democracy, Germany would be treated more fairly in the peace talks. Uh, German military forces withdrew from France and Belgium and returned to a Germany that was teetering on the brink of chaos. November 11th is still commemorated by the Allies as Armistice Day, and it's called Veterans Day in the United States. In all, between 16 and 19 million soldiers died in World War I, along with 7 to 8 million civilians. This is all before the influenza pandemic that I'll talk about in a couple minutes. Uh, some of the worst battles were uh, Verdun, 976,000 casualties, and this was a battle that lasted from February to December 1916. Uh, the Brusilov Offensive was a little bit shorter, June to September 1916, about 2 million people. The Somme, 1.2 million casualties from July to November 1916. Passchendaele, about 850,000 casualties in 1917. The Spring Offensive, one and a half million casualties in the spring of 1918. And then the Hundred Days Offensive, when the U.S. joined France and Britain and pushed German troops back to Germany, and about 1.9 million casualties in that three-month period. Civilian populations were also targeted. While bombing cities from airplanes was much more common in World War II, when bigger planes were available, Naval blockades were also an effective way of putting pressure on civilians. Even if a nation was self-sufficient in food production under normal circumstances, the war was not a normal circumstance. The British blockade of Germany prevented not only war supplies, but also food from reaching the German people, resulting in half a million civilian deaths. For the Europeans, World War I was a total war involving every level of society. By the end of the war, more than 4.7 million American men had served in all branches of the military. The United States lost over 100,000 men, 53,000 dying in battle, and even more from disease. This terrible sacrifice, however, paled before the European death toll. After four years of stalemate and brutal trench warfare, France had suffered almost a million and a half military dead, and German, Germany even more. Both nations lost about 4% of their populations to the war. And as I said, the death was not done. Even as the war raged on the eastern and western fronts, an even deadlier threat loomed in America. In the spring of 1918, a new strain of influenza, H1N1, uh, appeared in the farm country of Kansas, 
and hit nearby Camp Funston, which was one of the largest military training camps in America. The virus spread like wildfire. Between March and May 1918, 14 of the largest American military camps reported outbreaks of influenza. Some of the infected soldiers were shipped out anyway and carried the virus on troop transports to France. By September 1918, influenza had spread to all the training camps in the United States and to the European deployment. The second wave of the virus was even deadlier than the first. Unlike most flu viruses, H1N1 struck down people in the prime of their lives rather than old people and young children. A disproportionate number of influenza victims were between the ages of 18 and 35. In Europe, influenza hit troops and civilians on both sides of the Western Front. The disease was misnamed the Spanish influenza due to accounts of the disease that first appeared in the uncensored newspapers of neutral Spain while the warring nations tried to suppress news of the disease for propaganda purposes. The Spanish flu, as it became known universally, infected about 500 million people worldwide and resulted in the deaths of between 50 and 100 million people, possibly more. World population in 1918 was only about 1.8 billion. Influenza infected nearly a third and killed between 5 and 10 percent. Reports from the Surgeon General of the Army revealed that while 227,000 American soldiers had been hospitalized for wounds they had received in battle, almost half a million suffered from influenza. The worst part of the wartime epidemic struck during the height of the Argonne Offensive in the fall of 1918 and weakened the combat capabilities of both the Allied and the German armies. During the war, more soldiers died from influenza than from combat. But it didn't end with the war. The pandemic continued to spread after the armistice, with a death toll of nearly 20% of the people infected, as opposed to 0.1% in regular flu epidemics. Four waves of worldwide infection spread before cases and deaths finally began fading in the early 1920s. No cure was ever found. On December 4th, 1918, President Wilson became the first American president to travel overseas while in office. Wilson went to Europe to end the war to end wars, uh, and he intended to shape the peace. The war brought an abrupt end to four great European empires, the German, Empire, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire all evaporated, and the map of Europe was redrawn to accommodate new independent nations. As part of the armistice, allies occupied the territories of the Rhineland that separated Germany and France to prevent border conflicts there from reigniting war. A new German government was forced to disarm, while Wilson and other allied leaders gathered in France at Versailles to dictate the terms of a settlement. Uh, after months of deliberation, the Treaty of Versailles officially ended the war. In January 1918, even before American troops had arrived in Europe, President Wilson had offered an ambitious statement of war aims and peace terms known as the 14 points to a joint session of Congress. 
The plan not only addressed territorial issues, but offered principles on which Wilson believed a long-term peace could be built. The president called for reductions in global armaments, for freedom of the seas, uh, for the adjustment of some colonial claims, and for the abolition of the types of secret treaties that had led to the war. Some members of the international community welcomed Wilson's idealism, but in January 1918, Germany still anticipated a favorable verdict on the battlefield. It was preparing to try the spring offensive, and it didn't seriously consider accepting the terms of the 14 points. And even the Allies were dismissive. The French Prime Minister, George Clemenceau, remarked, the good Lord had only 10 commandments. Wilson had 14. President Wilson continued to promote his vision of the post-war world. The United States entered the fray, Wilson proclaimed, to make the world safe for democracy. At the center of this plan was a new international organization, the League of Nations. It would be charged with keeping a worldwide peace, affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small nations alike, Wilson said. This promise of collective security, that an attack on one member would be viewed as an attack on all, was a key component of the 14 points. Wilson's document was translated into many European languages, and it was even sent to Germany to encourage negotiation. But while President Wilson was celebrated in Europe as a god of peace, many of his fellow statesmen were less enthusiastic about his plans for post-war Europe. Uh, former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt called the 14 points high-sounding and meaningless and said that they could be interpreted to mean anything or nothing. And America's closest allies had little interest in the League of Nations. Allied leaders focused instead on guaranteeing the future safety of their own nations. Unlike the United States, safe across the Atlantic, the Allies had just endured the horrors of the war firsthand. They refused to sacrifice further. Negotiations made it clear that the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, was more interested in preserving Britain's imperial domain, while the French Prime Minister Clemenceau wanted severe financial reparations and limits on Germany's future ability to wage war. The fight for a League of Nations was largely on the shoulders of President Wilson alone. Despite the Allies' lack of agreement on the 14 points, the key role that U.S. troops and U.S. dollars had played on the outcome gave the Americans an influential seat at the negotiating table at Versailles. Woodrow Wilson was seen as an international hero, even if considered an idealist, and his appointee, Thomas Lamont, became a central figure in the negotiations that ended the war and set guidelines for German reparations, which ultimately bankrupted Germany and led to World War II. Uh, Wilson's 14 points have received a lot of attention from historians, but Britain and France were successful in getting punitive terms that they wanted into the final treaty. And Lamont went along with these because shifting the financial burden to Germany guaranteed that the allied nations, that owed J.P. Morgan and Company so much money would be able to pay it back. By June 1920, 
the final version of the treaty was signed and President Wilson was able to return home. The treaty was a compromise that included demands for German reparations, provisions for the League of Nations, and the promise of collective security. Wilson didn't get everything that he wanted, but Lamont did. According to the historian Ferdinand Lundberg, the total wartime expenditure of the United States government from April 1917 to October 1919, when the last contingent of troops returned from Europe, was $35,413,000,000. Net corporation profits for the period from January 1916 to July 1921, when wartime industrial activity was finally liquidated, was $38 billion. In the three years after the war, J.P. Morgan and Company would earn additional millions, loaning Germany the money the treaty required it to pay to the Allies so that they could pay the bankers. The Great War transformed the world. The Middle East especially was drastically changed. Before the war, the region east of the Mediterranean had had three main centers of power, the Ottoman Empire, British-controlled Egypt, and Iran. President Wilson's call for self-determination in the 14 points appealed to many people under Ottoman rule, especially the Arabs. In the aftermath of the war and the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, Wilson sent a commission to determine the conditions on the ground and the aspirations of the people. The King Crane Commission found that most people favored an independent state, free of European control. However, the people's wishes were largely ignored, and the lands of the former Ottoman Empire were divided into several nations created by Great Britain and France, with little regard for ethnic realities. The British in particular wanted to control the Suez Canal, which was their route to India. And they wanted to monopolize the oil of the Persian Gulf to fuel the diesel engines of their navy and their merchant marine. The Arab provinces uh, of the Ottomans were to be ruled by Britain and France as what were called mandates. And a new nation of Turkey emerged in the former Ottoman heartland in Anatolia. According to the League of Nations, Mandates were necessary in regions that were, quote, inhabited by peoples not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world, end quote. Though supposedly established for the benefit of the Middle Eastern people, the mandate system was essentially a reimagined form of 19th century imperialism. France received Syria, Britain took control of Iraq, Palestine, and Transjordan. The United States was invited to become a mandate power, but declined. To consolidate their power over the Arabs, the British supported Hussein ibn Ali, distantly related to the Prophet Muhammad, as king of Hejaz on the Arabian Peninsula, which included the holy sites of Mecca and Medina in 1916. His sons, Abdullah and Faisal, were chosen to be kings of Transjordan and Syria. Faisal was rejected in Syria, so he instead became king of Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi dynasty ended in violence with the murder of Faisal's grandson in 1958. Um, but Abdullah's dynasty still rules in Jordan. In Hejaz, Hussein ibn Ali was overthrown in 1925 by Ibn Saud, 
a tribal leader from Eastern Arabia. Through strategic marriages with other tribes, even Saud established Saudi Arabia. He had so many children that the current king is still one of his many sons. The disposition of the Middle East was complicated by the increasing importance of its oil resources. Oil was discovered in Iran in 1908, and during the period when petroleum was becoming the most important commodity of the 20th century, it was becoming clear that some of the world's largest reserves were located in the Middle East. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company, now known as BP, uh, was established in 1908 to control production in Iran. After the war, British-controlled businesses that had been licensed by the Ottomans to develop oil resources in Mesopotamia spurred British interest in creating the new Kingdom of Iraq under British mandate in 1920. The British-controlled multinational TPC, Turkish Petroleum Company, established in 1912, received a 75-year concession to develop Iraq's oil. However, in 1933, when enormous deposits of oil were discovered in eastern Arabia, even Saud turned to the Americans rather than the British to exploit these deposits, fearing renewed British meddling in his country. Uh, Aramco, the U.S. oil company, has been there ever since. At home, the United States grappled with harsh post-war realities. Racial tensions exploded in the red summer of 1919, when violence broke out in at least 25 American cities, including Chicago and Washington, D.C. Industrial war production and a massive wartime service had created labor shortages, and thousands of black Southerners had traveled to the North and the Midwest to work in factories. Uh, this great migration of black people escaping the traps of Southern poverty and Jim Crow sparked new racial conflict when white Northerners and then returning veterans fought to reclaim their jobs and to protect neighborhoods that they believed were for them alone. Many black Americans who had fled white supremacy in the South or had traveled halfway around the world to fight for the United States and protect democracy would not so easily accept post-war racism. The overseas experience of black Americans and their return triggered a dramatic change in their home communities. W.E.B. Du Bois, the black scholar and author who had encouraged blacks to enlist, highlighted African-American soldiers' combat experience when he wrote of returning troops, we return, we return from fighting, we return fighting. Make way for democracy. But white Americans just wanted to return to the status quo, a world that did not include social, political, or economic equality for black people. And they were alarmed, and they were frightened by the thought of fearless, capable, trained black men who had learned to handle weapons and to defend themselves on foreign battlefields. In 1919, racist riots erupted across the country from April to October. The bloodshed included thousands of injuries, hundreds of deaths, and vast destruction of both private and public property across the nation. The week-long Chicago riot from July 27th to August 3rd, 1919, which was considered the summer's worst, included mob violence, murder, and arson. 
Race riots had rocked the nation before, but the Red Summer was something new. Recently empowered Black Americans actively defended their families and their homes against hostile white rioters, often with deadly force. This behavior galvanized many in Black communities. But it also shocked white Americans, who interpreted Black self-defense as a prelude to total revolution. In the riot's aftermath, James Weldon Johnson wrote, Can't they understand that the more Negroes they outrage, the more determined the whole race becomes to secure the full rights and privileges of free men? In the fall, an organization called the African Blood Brotherhood formed in northern cities as a permanent armed resistance movement. The socialist orientation of its members rapidly led to an affiliation with the Communist Party of America. But the Russian-led Communist International, the Comintern, had no interest in semi-independent groups like the ABB with their Afro-Marxist ideas. The Brotherhood members found their way into other organizations like the Workers' Party of America and the American Negro Labor Congress. The wave of widespread lynching and riots against African Americans lasted into the early 1920s. One of the most prosperous black communities in the United States, the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was known as the Black Wall Street, was burned to the ground and over 100 people were killed by a white supremacist attack that included aerial gasoline bombing in 1921. Many white Americans felt threatened by African-American success and by increased social mobility. The early 1920s also saw the resurgence of the white supremacist Ku Klux Klan, which now added immigrant Jews and Catholics to the list of people who would, they believed would destroy traditional white Protestant America. These ideas culminated in the Immigration Act of 1924, which lowered overall immigration to a small fraction of what it had been before World War I, while setting up a quota system based on an ethnic makeup in the U.S. in 1890, the time before many Jewish and Catholic immigrants began arriving from Southern and Eastern Europe. Finally, the success of the Russian Revolution and the Communist Party in the Russian Civil War inflamed American fears of communism. The executions of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two Italian-born anarchists, epitomized this new American Red Scare. Arrested on suspicion of armed robbery and murder, Sacco and Vanzetti's trial focused not on the defendant's guilt or innocence, but on their anarchist political affiliations. Sacco and Vanzetti were quickly convicted and sentenced to death setting off a series of appeals and motions for mistrial. In 1925, while the two men were sitting on death row, another man confessed to the crime and provided details that made his confession credible. The judge, however, refused a petition for a new trial and was later heard remarking to another Massachusetts lawyer, did you see what I did with those anarchist bastards the other day? People all over the world demonstrated their sympathy with the accused. Albert Einstein, George Bernard Shaw, and H.G. Wells signed petitions. Demonstrations were held in London and Paris and Geneva and Amsterdam and even Tokyo. 
Famous authors wrote about the case, such as John Dos Passos, Facing the Chair, Maxwell Anderson's Gods of the Lightning, or Upton Sinclair's Boston. The Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies, Labor Union, called a three-day national walkout to protest the executions. Sacco and Vanzetti were executed just after midnight on August 23, 1927. The Sacco Vanzetti case demonstrated an American paranoia about immigrants and the potential spread of radical ideas, especially ideas related to international communism. On the 50th anniversary of the executions, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis issued a proclamation that Sacco and Vanzetti had been unfairly tried and convicted, and that any disgrace should be forever removed from their names. We'll talk more next time about the difficulties that the world faces in the aftermath of this world war. But that's all for now. So I hope that was useful to you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again next time.